0: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Tracy Schott's Voices for Change Radio. We are so thrilled to have today's guest, Dr. Ray Taylor an associate producer and chair of the Department of Criminology and Justice at Loyal University in New Orleans. I'm Hope Katz-Gibbs, producer of the show and all things Incandescent. And I'm gonna turn it over to Tracy, who is a filmmaker, and created the award-winning documentary, Finding Jen's Voice, which is 10 years ago today, Tracy. So please talk about that. But I'm gonna kick the show over to you and welcome Ray.
1: Thanks, Hope. Um, Yeah, welcome everybody. Um, Today is March 16th. Uh, 2021 and um, 11 years ago today Jennifer Snyder was murdered by her boyfriend Um, she was two months pregnant and that really started me down this road of um, creating a film finding Jen's voice a week later after Jen was um, killed I got a call from her aunt who was a friend of mine who told me that um, her niece had been murdered and wanted to tell her story. And at that time, I wasn't quite sure um, that there was a story to tell. I was a reporter, I was a filmmaker and um, and actually I just started my own um, production company. Um, and while I was on the phone with Trina, I Googled pregnancy and homicide and found this study from 2005 um that showed um homicide to be a leading cause of death the leading cause of death during pregnancy which was mind-blowing to me and um i heard the words come out of my mouth you're right trina we need to tell jen's story and uh yes i'm gonna i'm gonna do this documentary film and it took me four years to make it um and it was 10 years ago So I really want to um, just take a moment to honor Jen's memory. Um, Since uh, the film was released, thousands of people have seen it. Um, And the feedback has been almost universally positive in terms of people walking away from watching the film and feeling like they have a better understanding of how intimate partner violence and homicide happens. And um, she, Jen, Uh, was a a quiet, shy, um, sweet, responsible girl who um, was a veterinarian uh, technician, loved animals um, and loved her horse and her dog and her family. And um, her life was cut short much too soon, but her voice continues. And so um, for that, um, I'm, grateful to share that uh, story with everybody. So um, when I started doing this film, I really didn't understand that I was even looking at intimate partner violence. I just was looking at homicide and it took me a little while to figure out what was going on. And one of the conversations I had was with today's guests. Dr. Ray Taylor, who is a professor at Loyola University and chair of the Department of Criminology. Um, I I found her through, God bless Google. I Google pregnancy and homicide and I was digging deep through um, you know, the Google world. And I found um, Ray Taylor's dissertation uh, from University, Florida or Central Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So she she, and and Mm -hmm. I tracked her down and she was working at Loyola University. Um, You become a bit of a sleuth when you're a filmmaker and and doing a documentary trying to find all the information. Um, And she had done this dissertation on um, pregnancy related intimate partner violence and homicide. And I read her dissertation, called her out of the blue, <laughs> and said, uh, you know, hi, I'm a filmmaker uh, and a former social worker. I'm doing a film about a young lady who was murdered while she was pregnant. And I found, I read your dissertation, to which, Ray, you said, you read- my You did? <laughs> really? I'm not even sure my, my professors my <laughs> read my dissertation. <laughs> I'm like, yep, I read it. And uh, it, that started um, a, a wonderful conversation and it turned into a friendship. And so welcome, 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 Ray Taylor for joining. Uh, thank you for joining us today at Voices for Change. Um, My pleasure. So talk to us a little bit about, about what you've been up to these last few years. Um, I know you you're busy with research, busy with teaching. Uh, I think you had a little baby along the way. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Yeah. So a
2: decade, I can't believe it. First of all, it's, it's gone by really fast. I, yeah, I'm a professor, so my work is teaching, and it's research, and, um, you know, in terms of intimate partner violence, that's my passion, that's what drove me, I, I was a victim advocate, I was a practitioner, and my, the work was very important, it was very fulfilling, but it was also constantly frustrating, heartbreaking, to see what is often the injustices of the criminal justice system, and it just, I just continued to have more questions than I did answers, and then ultimately decided, I need to go back to school and I need to study and I need to teach other people. Um, So that's what drove me into this line of work. But over the past, um, I'm in my 12th year as an academic. And what you hope in the line of work like this is that you work yourself out of a job. Um, And unfortunately, you know, I was just talking with you, Tracy, about some of the more recent national studies. And unfortunately, the numbers, things have gotten better in some ways. Don't get me wrong. And it's extremely important to recognize those, um, the, those successes and improvements, but in terms of just prevalence rates, how many women and men are victims of intimate partner violence, it's worse than when I started, um, at at research in graduate school. So for years I wrote and I taught, um, based on the National Violence Against Women study, which was back in, I think, 2000, uh, one in four women are victims of intimate partner violence. And so when a big CDC study came out in 2010, I remember opening it sort of with excitement to see, you know, where are we now, thinking surely the numbers are, are better, only to find that now one in three women are victims of intimate partner violence. Um, one in four men have been victims of, of these things as well, and I was heartbroken and Confused. And, you know, so again, we have some good things going on, but um, this is just, a, this is a pandemic. This is a pandemic that has persisted as long as as human beings have persisted. And so my work has continued. You know, I, I, I teaching, I think, is the most important thing that I do. Research is extremely important and I love it. But just teaching and I actually jumped off of a class to jump onto the podcast and listening to my students talk about the careers they want to pursue and victim advocacy and, and victim services and um, policy analysis and education. It just like that's what drove me into uh academia. So I've been teaching, teaching a lot, um, teaching more and more. So this is one of the, the positive things. My, the courses that I teach, domestic violence, crisis intervention, victim services, this kind of thing is more and more in demand than it ever has been. and I think that's a great sign of awareness and how much people care. Um, And then you know research as well and and as it tends to do my research has gone in a lot of different directions um mass incarceration is an area i never thought i would be find myself in and yet that's actually consumed most of my research time in the last five years but um but yeah still looking into you know programs and policies that and and how they work um but i've also uh, i have felt for all these years a constant pull back into the trenches, as I say. And so I've, I've been able to, in the last couple of years, really bolster my service to the community. And so I do a lot of um, volunteer advocacy for local, the Family Justice Center here in New Orleans. Um, I've recently joined the Fatality Review Team, which is an interdisciplinary group of people here in New Orleans. And these things exist um, around the country. And so our job is to look at intimate partner homicides and to you know literally um, conduct what, what the, the person who kind of created this model, Dr. Neil Webbsdale has referred to these as social autopsies. How did we fail these people? These are all preventable deaths. At what points were these people brought to the attention of, of, you know the different structures and where and how did we fail them? and how do we not repeat these mistakes going forward? So long answer to a lot of different things that, I, that I've had going on in the last few years, but you know yeah. still trying to chip away at the
1: same problem. Right. And you know, I think that um, so much more um, understanding and awareness is surrounding intimate partner violence and maybe some of the barriers around shame have broken down. Uh, maybe so I, I, I wonder if the numbers, in actuality have gone up or if the reporting has gone up. Um, Let's break down those numbers, that one in three. That includes intimate partner violence, sexual assault, and stalking. Is that correct?
2: So um, we look at these things individually and then also kind of look at them because many people have experienced more than one of these. So if you look at just the physical violence, so this is you know, on a range from hitting, slapping, punching to beating, you know, weapons, et cetera. That's one in three women, one in four men, one in 10 women have been sexually assaulted by an intimate partner, violent, uh, intimate partner. Um, and then three in 10 women have been victims of more than one of these things. So when you kind of break it down, looking at each individual, as well as, um, just kind of violence as one big category. That's what we're looking at. Um, And again, I'm basing this on that 2010 CDC study. Research comes out every day where we're learning more and more. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But those numbers are, are, um, they don't come out easily. I mean, one of the things that I discovered when I was doing um, the film and was really looking at the research, there were so many differences in how people reported intimate partner violence and homicide particularly. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you try to kind of cross-reference and I know you found this in your your dissertation, you try to cross-reference Homicide with pregnancy. Well, not all coroners report, um, preg- you know, that their victims are pregnant, and not mm-hmm. all um, police reports or coroners reports suggest, you know, show that there was intimate partner violence. It's just a homicide, um, and it's so. There, the information is, you know, one of the, you know, curses of being fifty. is you know, everybody reports data differently. And um, so it makes it really hard to do a national study. So we see more and more um, regional studies, you know, which is what that first study was with Dr. Chang and Dr. Haran that was based on Maryland numbers. Uh, I understand um, there was also a report that came out last year out of Tulane. Can we talk a little bit about that
2: yeah, so um, uh, 2019 or 2020, I don't remember the exact publication date, but a, a team of medical researchers at Tulane studied um, 119 deaths among pregnant women in Louisiana, and they found that homicide was the number one cause of death, topping all other um, obstetric related, you know, ways that women died. Pregnancy is it's dangerous. And there's so much excellent prenatal care and all of that. But even in, in this in 2020, um, it's dangerous, you know, and it, particularly for women of color. Um, if you look at maternal mortality, that's a whole other radio show. <laughs> um, but if you look at m- maternal mortality for for being who we are as a nation, we have woefully, um horrible rates of maternal mortality most of which are preventable deaths again and and black women are uh disproportionately victims in these deaths but when you add in the context of violence yeah intimate partner violence so murder almost always at the hands of the the intimate partner being the number one cause of death for pregnant women and it's, you know, Tracy, in my classes, I I assign finding Jen's voice and, and I still find, you know, and this comes a little bit later in the class after my students have learned a lot of stuff, they're always stunned absolutely stunned to hear they whoever it is whatever you know when I'm talking to, to groups in the community or when we went to Washington and presented to you know presented the film and had this this dynamic panel to talk to the people there uh, people are just absolutely stunned to hear this and it is stunning it, it is stunning information but the thing is that it Again, it's endemic. One in three U.S. women are victims of physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner. Can you think of anything else where if this risk was one in three, it would be headlining the news 24 hours a day? We would stop and as a society band together and say, we have a crisis on our hands. We have to fix this right now. But the
1: numbers persist. Last year, the end of February, beginning of March, I was preparing to launch the Voices for Change website. And um, I I, de- I decided to do a press release, and I really wanted to. I released this uh, press release on International Day of the Women, which is uh, March eighth, right? And so I was talking about this being an epidemic, mm-hmm. right? And um, really talked it talked about I talked about domestic violence as a as an epidemic, a pandemic that we should be Um, paying attention to and if if there were a virus that were killing people, one in three people, we would like be up in arms and putting all of our resources into trying to figure that out. I released that and then of course, um, as we all know, you know, a week later, the whole world started locking down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, as horrible as this has been, um it's also been so frustrating to to, to say uh, you know what's it going to take for people for our societies to put this kind of energy into preventing uh the deaths and violence against women i mean it's mm-hmm. i just i it's just been so frustrating and and of course you and i are participating in a webinar in a few weeks um uh, with uh, the uh, New Orleans Family Justice Center and um, a survivor and somebody from the healthcare center. And we're going to be talking about the shadow pandemic and mm-hmm. how the shadow pand- the, the pandemic has made it even that much worse for um, women um, who are experiencing intimate partner violence. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of, it, it is mind-blowing. It's very frustrating. It's like, how do we get people's attention? How, how do we get people to really take, take it seriously? And, and that's the reason we're doing this podcast. You know, it's the reason for, for the efforts that we've put out in terms of webinars and podcasts and the, and the website and just trying to get people to pay attention and talk about it. Um, yes. there's so many people. And that was the other thing that, that my frustration when I was doing finding Jen's voice was, I thought I was a pretty well-informed person, you know, and, and there was so much that I learned that should be just common knowledge. Like those numbers should roll off everybody's tongue because mm-hmm. everybody, sh- it, it should, that information should be really easily accessible. And it's not.
2: It's not, it, you know, I think it's going to take a, a major culture shift. And I think we're in the middle of one right now. I'm so hopeful um, with the Me Too movement and, and you know, look at what's happening in England right now. I mean, so many people coming to the streets and saying enough is enough is enough. This young woman was walking home one night. Um, and, and so when we get cases like this that really sort of shake the world, it gets a lot of attention. But if you look back over the history of this movement, that's what happens. There's sort of it's kind of waxes and wanes. And when we have um, someone, a high profile case. So when Rihanna is the victim of, you know, brutal intimate partner violence and quite honestly is exploited with her face, you know, her beaten, bruised, bloodied face all over the place against her will, I think. Um, we we go, oh, this is a terrible problem. We need to start talking about this. I care about this. And a little bit of time passes and it goes away again. Um, and, you know, so I think movements like the Me Too movement is just such a perfect example, um, which is really fueled by the power of celebrity and platform. And thank goodness for that. But I always, I talk to groups and I talk, you know, one of the things that I use um, with my students to talk about this is breast cancer awareness. So for a long time, I mean, I remember when I was a little girl in the seventies and eighties, breast cancer was kind of a taboo topic because it dealt with breasts and mostly women were affected by breast cancer. So it it only affected women. Therefore it wasn't everyone's problem and look at, you know, and getting a breast cancer diagnosis was felt like a death sentence to people. Look at where we are now through this cultural shift. Breast cancer is something that our, you know, my preschooler will wear a little pink ribbon in the month of October and learn about breast cancer awareness, which is amazing. We had a few years where our NFL players wore pink cleats and sweatbands and and things like that. Like who would have ever thought and, and to hear them say things like this is not, uh, this is all of our problem and we're all part of the same team, you know, fixing this. So anyway, we, we've gone from, we don't talk about breast cancer and if you get it, you know, it, it's probably not going to go well to breast cancer now, um, affects one in eight women, one in eight women will be diagnosed, which is still a staggering number, but look where we've come in, um. Research and development and the fact that it is no longer a death sentence, most women are going to with proper preventative care and that sort of thing, which is now much more widely available, going to beat this thing. And the conversation is just so, present. you go into any, you know, you go to Target in the month of October and you can buy any number of hundreds and hundreds of products in pink and where that money goes is another story. But nevertheless, we've brought a problem that affects mostly women, but not only women into just the, the dinner table conversation. And the result is that we have made a huge impact in the problem. Domestic violence should be just like that. It's everyone's problem. Every single person, every single person is affected by this. If not that they are a victim, it's that they love someone, most likely multiple people who are victims, survivors. And, and I always say, anyone who says, no, not me, I can't think of anyone, it's because you just don't know it yet. And I'm, I'm so sad that that is the case, but we are all affected by intimate partner violence. One in eight women are diagnosed with breast cancer and we all talk about it. One in three women are victims of physical and partner violence. And people are stunned when they hear that because we just, we don't, it's just not where it needs to be in our conversation and in our policy and in our services and in our resource allocation.
1: It costs us a lot, you know, besides the costs of, um, the, the emotional and physical cost to victims and families. There's also, you know, there it, it costs our economy. The costs of for the criminal justice system of dealing with the cases that actually do go to the criminal justice system, that's staggering. The healthcare costs are staggering. And then the long-term costs to our children. Yeah. Um, it's just Um, I, the the latest statistic I saw, and correct me if you've seen something different, is 15 million children a year in the U.S. are impacted by domestic violence. That sounds
2: like a a gross underestimate to me. I mean, that's still a huge number, but yeah, I mean, Children who live in homes where there is domestic violence, even if the child is not directly or purposefully victimized, um, and people think, you know, we, sh- we shield the children from this, and and no, you don't. Anyone who's grown up in a, a conflict-ridden home can tell you the kids know exactly what's going on. Um, but these children are prisoners of war. You know, children are defenseless. They have no way out. And so when they're living in these homes with this violence, even if it's if it's emotional abuse, and the physical part is not there. I'll tell you something I've heard countless times over the years as a victim advocate. And then throughout my you know, research and work over the years, people who are um, victimized by these crimes and the survivors of these crimes will tell you that the emotional abuse is worse than the physical abuse. Oftentimes, um, bruises fade, you can, you know, repair broken bones, all of the physical stuff usually eventually heals, um, but the emotional part often never does. And so that's what you hear over and over is that's the worst part. And so children are directly or indirectly affected by all of that. Yeah. And it affects their, um, emotional health that affects their, their physical health. I mean, these are children who suffer disproportionately and needlessly from preventable disease um, that they suffer from because of the, the impact of this chronic stress and anxiety and, and frankly, emotional abuse from being subjected
1: to this in their homes. As you said, um, victims talk about emotional abuse as being more kind of catastrophic to their well being. It's, it's pretty likely that if you've got an abuser in the house, um, emotionally abusing, um, the mother, it's probably emotionally abusing the children. Mm -hmm. Um, More than likely. Yeah. You know, and that, that is even more catastrophic to children when they're, you know, they're developing and, um, you know, it, and then you really do look at like the cyclical nature of abusive families. And it's just, it's um, and as you pointed out early, this is all preventable. Mm -hmm. This is is. preventable. It, it really really (laughs) takes um, political will. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, you know, takes more than a village, you know, it takes, it, yeah. you have to really approach it from a whole bunch of different um, avenues. And certainly education's a big one. That's right. And we
2: call that the systems approach. We need everyone on board, all of the systems, all of these major social institutions. So we need education, we need government, we need religion, we need the family, we need everyone first to care about it. You know, it's really just about what we care about and how we construct social problems as first of all a real problem. Um and and domestic violence and sexual assault, I would just say kind of categorically, violence against women is one of the most victim-blaming areas of all social problems. And so we we blame the victim um, for what they did or didn't do. And we put, you know, when we do that, um, we kind of in a way absolve the perpetrator of guilt because we're blaming the victim for what he or she did or did not do, which also puts the responsibility for the abuse on the victim of the abuse. All of our questions are, you know, with a, with a, a woman who's in a violent relationship, just to use that sort of classical example is, well, why doesn't she just leave as if that is just so simple. Um, and as if leaving will prevent the abuse when 75% or more of women who were killed by an intimate partner are killed when they leave because they leave. So we have just these oversimplified, very victim blaming questions that, um, fundamentally are not helpful, but also just sort of perpetuate all the stereotypes and the apathy and take away, you know, the important attention and then resources that could be directed at this. I'm very hopeful. um, Today, as a matter of fact, Congress is voting to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act, which has sat stagnant for a few years now, um, not cared about by the very people or some of the very people who have the most power in our society to really make an impact here. And so I'm so hopeful that today will be a turning point in some of these really important resources will kind of be unlocked again, and we can get back out to helping people and and prevention and education, because that's really where we're going to make our impact is we've got to, we've got to respond effectively. And we've got to, you know, treat medically and and emotionally and all of those kinds of ways. But we also need to prevent this to begin with. And again, work ourselves out of a job, hopefully.
1: (laughs) And, you know, one of the things we talked about, um, you know, when we first met was, the effect of the media, you know, that uh, the media is our, it's our cultural church, you know, it, it really is. It's got, it's such a um, impactful um, uh, structure in our society. So how, how do we um, impact the media? And, and what, what do you know about that? I know you've done some research on that. Yeah.
2: We have to hold the media accountable. Um, The media absolutely, you know, have the power to control the narrative here. And so it's really just about what the media want to focus on. And so they do report on intimate partner violence, but they tend to do it episodically as opposed to thematically and so they treat the case of an intimate partner homicide for example as an isolated shocking tragedy it is a tragedy it is shocking but it is not isolated and it is a theme Um, and so treating these reports as part of a bigger social problem and contextualizing them in that theme is where you educate readers and viewers because when you cover it that kind of episodic way, people read it and go, "Well, this isolated incident is shocking and tragic." But thank goodness it's just an isolated incident. So they're missing this critical. First of all, they're not telling the truth in that kind of reporting, but they're missing a critical opportunity to provide an education to their readers and their viewers, um, and to to push this into the forefront where it belongs. Um, so I think the media are very responsible, and then again. Very responsible, in my opinion, maybe the most responsible for perpetuating um, myths that are so dangerous to uh, victims, uh, potential victims of, of these crimes, because kind of reinforcing some of these just archaic and rigid and dangerous gender, you know, expectations and roles um, perpetuating the the inferiority of women and um, all kinds of other things that just continue to contribute, contribute to a culture of violence, a culture of violence, which is very much what we live in when one in three women are victims of intimate partner violence, one in five women are victims of sexual assault. This is a culture of violence against women. And I think the media have to have to take ownership of that narrative and responsibility for changing it in important ways.
1: So what do you think the media should do differently? So how, how can we reach out with a message to reporters to say, this is what you need to how, how you need to report on this differently? Important question. So first of all, Do the homework. If you are
2: a reporter on this, you are a student of this, whatever it is that you're reporting on, do the homework and understand the thematic nature of intimate partner violence or of sexual assault or of child abuse or of whatever it is that you're covering. Understand that these are not isolated episodes, but that they are themes. Do your homework and understand that. Reach out to experts, uh, which brings me to the next thing that they can do. So reporters are oftentimes um, through no fault of their own trying to, to beat a deadline. And so they've got a, a finite amount of time, a really short amount of time to uh, to get sources for their story. And so a lot of times the go-to's are the police officer who um, just knows what they saw on the scene and also themselves may not understand the greater context. Um, And they interview the police officer. They might interview the, the assistant district attorney who's prosecuting the case. And absent in so many of these reports are the voices of survivors, which, by the way, are the experts on these areas. Those of us who are students forever are at the mercy of what we're taught from the people who are the real experts, which are the survivors. I think there's a place for the survivor's voice in every one of these stories or broadcasts or whatever it is. Also, you know, Researchers, people who study this stuff. There are a lot of us out here, um, practitioners, victim advocates. So um, most communities are going to have some sort of family justice center, rape crisis center, um, experts in your area who are practitioners and or scholars in this area. These are the voices who can, and I'm not saying the police officer or the prosecutor or the judge are not also important voices, but they're the most relied upon and not the only ones. Also, you know, you got to be careful about things like the neighborhood or the coworker, they might only know the gossip part of the story or.
1: He mowed my grass. He shoveled my walk. He was really a nice guy.
2: Yeah. Which brings me to the next thing. Um, reckless kind of reporting, which can be so irresponsible, can be very victim blaming. And also, you know, so when you write about I'm thinking of some real examples that I covered. I wrote my master's thesis 200 years ago on this very thing. And I did a content analysis of media coverage of intimate partner homicide. And I would find cases where the beloved baseball coach in the community, um, Murdered his wife with a machete in the parking lot of the elementary school where she was a teacher, and people go, oh, but he was so great. He helped my son become such a better baseball player, and um, took the kids out for pizza after the the championship, and he was just a lovely person. And okay, fine, it's not to say that he wasn't a great coach and all of that, but he did murder his wife, and so the focus of the story should be that this woman was murdered by this person. It doesn't matter that he was a. great coach. Doesn't matter that he was a great coach who cares about the pizza, but that stuff will be three quarters of a story will be that kind of thing. Um, and so you, when you do that, it's what I consider sort of an indirect victim blame, because when you talk up what a great person, this murderer was, or this abuser was, it's like, you're saying, yeah, they did this thing, but something happened. They snapped. Uh, because really they were this really good person. It diminishes the victim of the crime. It, It minimizes their experience. And then another thing that you'll often see is, um, the the person who was murdered, or even if it's not a a fatality, but um, they'll talk about like, well, I saw things in articles, like she had run up the credit card debt. She had, you know, alienated her friends as she was going through a hard time with her mental health, all these kinds of things that then make the reader sometimes inadvertently go, oh, well, it sounds like she had some issues. So no wonder he killed her. You know, what is the point of that? So we, we, we talk up the perpetrator, we diminish the victim. And this is, again, it's, it's sloppy. It's, it's convenient, but it's ultimately reckless and irresponsible because these portrayals research shows directly affect the attitudes and beliefs of the reader, the viewer and attitudes and beliefs are affected by behavior and not to say a reader is going to go, well, this has suddenly inspired me to become an abuser, but you know what? That's not unheard of, but also these are jurors. These are educators. These are are people who are going to carry these messages forward in, in one way or another. And I saw, you know, hope you had mentioned a guidebook. There are some really great examples out there. Um, for education for journalists and how how to more responsibly and accurately report on this stuff. I think there's a group out of Rhode Island, and I'm sorry, I would have looked it up if I'd known you were going to ask me that, who created this amazing guidebook years and years and years ago that's still widely circulated and updated. Um, I think that's a really great idea. Ongoing education with
1: reporters. Right. I know NNEDV has how to report, you know, like information for journalists and also information for domestic violence organizations talking to journalists. That's another piece. And I've I've done some education around that myself. Um, You know, being somebody who works with media, I I completely understand the power of media and um, how easy it is to manipulate a conversation. Um, you know, we were, we were talking about Jen, the day um, after her body was found, you know, it was, uh, and, and her, he was arrested within a week. Um, you know, married vet accused of uh, murdering his mistress. You know, um, it was so disparaging. It allowed people to go, oh, veterinarian, he was married. You know how a, a pregnant mistress, you know, how dare she have an affair with a married man? I mean, he wasn't held accountable for, for being having um uh, an affair, that was mm-hmm. that was not um the the focus of most of the reporting, it, you know, and and like you said, there's always this tendency to look at the behavior of victims, um, and you know, victims can be imperfect you know we're all imperfect and not everybody is you know um is a complete innocent right but that doesn't justify i mean we're we're all human we all make mistakes but analyzing a victim's mistakes instead of analyzing the behavior of a perpetrator is just like you said it's irresponsible It
2: also explains why, you know, the age old question, another victim blaming question, why um, don't survivors go forward more often? Why don't survivors um, cooperate with the investigation as often as we think they should and the prosecution and all of that stuff? you can look no further than how they're dragged through the mud in the media to see who would sign up for that. And then when you look at the, the the minuscule rates of successful accountability in the criminal justice system compared to the number of events that happen and the number that are reported and all of that, you have to question who who would go through this process? You know, thank goodness many do. But instead of asking those kinds of again, very victim blaming questions. We have to look at the bigger picture and and the experience of being a victim of crime and what you then have to go through only to get sometimes, you know, the case drops. Sometimes um, the person just gets kind of a slap on the wrist. And then not only is the person who, who putting your life in danger is right back out there, but you've been dragged through the mud in the media, in court. It's a, a grueling, terrible process. Um, but it, it doesn't stop us from asking these very victim-blaming questions all the time.
1: Well, and it also um, val- validates um, the perpetrator. And, you know, we, we had um, a webinar last week in which a victim talked about how the criminal justice system really let her down. And she said, by not prosecuting him, they not only did they not hold him accountable, they actually emboldened him to go out and do it again, mm-hmm. because, you know, he didn't even get a slap on the wrist. They right. just ignored it. So, you know, and, and what we do know about, um, abusers and, um, rapists is a large percentage of them are, ser- it's a serial behavior. You know, if they, Absolutely. you know, they leave one victim behind, they, they find another one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's it's a scary it's a scary thing. Oh, how are we going to save the world? right, we <laughs> have <laughs> a lot of work to do. <laughs> there is a lot of work to do, and it is disheartening. Um, you know, when I when I um, started uh, finding Jen's voice ten years ago, I never ever would have imagined I'd be sitting here um, doing a podcast about. Uh, domestic violence, you know, I I didn't see myself um, going down this path. But, um, and I also felt like, you know, a documentary film like this usually has just a few years of shelf life and and before it becomes obsolete. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not obsolete. Mm -hmm. Um, Numbers really haven't changed. It's just as horrific now, as it was 10 years ago um and there's still so much work to do and as you said we're just trying i would really like for you know uh, film finding jen's voice to kind of just be one of those things that somebody finds you know in 20 years and pulls it out and you know i want my grandchildren to find that film and go whoa can you believe that that's what it was like back then yeah exactly that's what i want to hear right i i I don't want to hear in 20 years that we're still with these horrific numbers that mm-hmm. absolutely can be prevented. It's just yeah, yeah, I agree. This is um, you know March and it's uh, um, Women's History Month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we just had International Day of the Women and uh, uh, and and there's a lot going on, as you pointed out, in um, England. You know, there's a lot of um, uproar about sexual assault and the safety of women and making um, you know, women's lives count. Um, there's a lot going on in Mexico. I don't know if you're following that. Um, and, you know, where the rates of femicide in Mexico are just horrific. And there are young girls out there marching in the street in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. um, And they build a wall around the presidential palace and Mm -hmm. and, you know, they're they're making it into art. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's, there's there's a lot of outrage and you're seeing it in India and you're seeing it in Africa and Australia. It's um, I'd like to hear a little more outrage here. Yeah in the US. Me too. And I think we, again, it goes
2: back into sort of the waxing and waning nature of this as a social issue. Um, If we were to have another high profile case where a celebrity or someone in the spotlight is a perpetrator or a survivor, we will suddenly care about it a lot for a little bit of time. And then we won't again, you know, once that story sort of dies out, Um, yeah. Uh, And and we've had other sensational things sort of overshadow the public narrative for a while now, but you and I will talk about this more in the webinar, but here in this last year of lockdown, we've put um, abused people, locked them into their homes with their abusers, with, uh, you know, resources having to shut their doors or, or drastically decrease the amount of work that they can do. One of the things that I do on a volunteer basis is I'm a medical advocate. And, and so this is when people go to the hospital um, because of their injuries from domestic violence or sexual assault. And ideally, a medical advocate would meet the person there, the survivor there, and, and literally hold their hand through that horrible process educate them on what's going on talk to them about their their resources and then connect them with you know more long term care that's all been done remotely over the phone so can you imagine you're lying in the hospital and you've got broken bones in your face and it's hard to talk and you've got someone on the telephone who you don't know who's trying to help you but it's just so it's been so bad and so a lot of people haven't been able to get the resources that they need because The abuser is right there, you know, monitoring correspondence. And then the resources might just be available online right now or on the phone right now, which again, you can't do if you're you're being watched. So it's no wonder we've seen uh, increased severity and frequency of domestic violence in the last year. Lethal and non-lethal. it's really bad.
1: It is really bad. Well, um, we're gonna talk a whole lot more about that subject on April 21st um, and you can f- find more information about that at voicesforchange.net, voices, the number four, change.net. And uh, we'll be um, registering people for that webinar. Um, it is a free webinar um, and really just um, trying to bring voices and awareness to these issues um, with, I, you know, I keep hearing the word shadow pandemic, but you don't, you don't really hear enough information about what does that really mean? And what does that really feel like to, um, to be living in, um, in these times in an abusive relationship and, and how that has impacted people's ability to provide services. And one of the things that you brought up um, uh, during an earlier conversation is um, how it's impacting the prosecution Mm-hmm. and the criminal just justice response to um, intimate partner violence. So we'll have lots to talk about again when we do that. Yeah. Um, so we've, uh, you know, we ran through our time. We, we knew we would, um, mm-hmm. Ray and I get together. We talk really fast and, say a lot. I really um, appreciate you so much sharing your wisdom and experience with us today, Ray, and uh, look forward to having you on the Voices for Change webinar on April 21st. And um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, You can continue to follow us here. And um, if you want to learn more about Jennifer Snyder's story, um, you can... Uh, view Finding Jen's Voice, it can be streamed, and you'll find that on the Voices for Change website. Thanks so much, Hope, for hosting us.
0: Uh, My pleasure. Thank you both so much. What a beautiful, devastating, take your breath away conversation that, you know, it it once kind of makes you want to (laughs) just give up, and then the other moment, it makes you want to just be part of this revolution that you two are part of, and um, I'm honored to have Incandescent be part of this effort to make a change in the world the change that we wish to see so thank you dr ray taylor professor at loyola and of course the amazing tracy shot creator of the award-winning finding gen's voice at voicesforchange.net and we'll talk again next tuesday 1 p.m eastern on the incandescent radio network here on facebook live so we thank you all again for joining us and um, we hope that you feel energized and you want to join this revolution too so we'll talk to you next week